0: Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. <clears throat> I was introduced to Jamie Kreitz at a wedding in the spring of 2004. She was a bridesmaid and I was a groomsman, both in the same wedding party. And right away, I noticed her and stared awkward, awkwardly at her <laughs> during the whole period rehearsal and through the rehearsal dinner that followed, Uh, I'm sure I creeped her out a little bit, and then I asked the bride-to-be who this girl was and why she had never introduced us. She told me her name was Jamie Kreitz. What a wonderful name. (laughs) So, uh, So there we were at a wedding with love buzzing through the air. It was a storybook scene, right? Uh, But there was one problem. I lacked any confidence whatsoever to go up to her and introduce myself. So at some point during the reception, Jamie introduced herself to me. The way she tells the story is that my first words to her were something like this. Uh, My my, my name is Matt, Matt, Matt. (laughs) I like to think I had a little more poise, but I'm I'm sure she's right and, and I'm wrong. That's how marriage works. (laughs) I was introduced to God as a young boy. My earliest memories include being taught who God is. My parents played a significant role in modeling for me the importance of faith and devotion to scripture and prayer. I, I learned as a part of a local church that God was worthy of worship and his desire that we as his people would know him and was taught of his heart, which burned for the praise of the nations. And then one evening in the spring of 1987, my dad sat me down and shared what God had done for me, who God was. He introduced me to the Lord in in a personal way, how I could be saved from the penalty of my sin by trusting in Christ Jesus opened my eyes to believe. The Holy Spirit made my heart new by his fiery presence. God introduced himself to me, and my life was completely changed. He used the means of my parents who instructed me, and a church that taught me, but God alone redeemed me. I am eternally thankful. When did God introduce himself to you? When did he introduce himself to you? Last week we arrived at one of the most memorable scenes in the whole of Scripture. Moses was in the wilderness, barefoot, talking to a burning bush. And in that holy place, in that holy moment, the holy God introduced himself to a trembling mortal man. Moses was welcomed into the burning presence of God. And God spoke. He spoke to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And in that, he identified with his people. He was not embarrassed to be named among his people. We also found that God's will was not that Moses just sit in God's presence the rest of his days, but to go in God's presence to fulfill the good works that God had ordained in his life. We celebrated three years of God's faithfulness to us last week, remembering how we also have been welcomed into the presence of God, been entrusted with the firm foundation of the word of God. And sent into this community and in this world on the mission of God. So, this morning we we're picking up right where we left off. The fiery scene of Moses speaking with God in the burning bush is where we still find ourselves in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. This passage is one of the most important scriptures in all of the scripture. And what it teaches us about God as he introduces himself to Moses. He reveals his name and also his plan of redemption that he's about to carry out in the lives of his people as he delivers them from Egypt. So our sermon's entitled, The Great I Am. And I want to divide our text into two remarkably significant sections. First, the name of our Redeemer verses 13 through 15, and second, the plan of redemption, verses 16 through 22. So there you have it, the name of our Redeemer, 13 through 15, and the plan of redemption, 16 through 22. Let me invite you to stand once more to your feet for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, though written long ago, speaks to us today. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You hear the joy in this chapter? This is the news that we've been waiting for now for the last month the revealing of God's name, and how he intends to save his people. First, let's look at the name of our Redeemer in verses 13 through 15. Our passage opens with Moses thinking ahead to the mission that God has called him to. He imagines how the Israelites might respond when he tells them that God has appeared to him at Sinai, deep in the wilderness, and now has sent him back to Egypt, with this message of deliverance. And so, uh, earlier in verse 11, um, Moses asked God, Who am I? And remember, God didn't even give him half an answer. Well, here, uh, he asked him another question. He says, Who are you? Who should I say is sending me? And God answers this question in two parts. As he introduces himself to Moses, God discloses his name and then explains his name. So let's look at those two parts. In the first part of God's answer, he discloses his name. This is in verse 14. Before we arrive at the book of Exodus, the book of Genesis already has provided a variety of names that describe God. Each has a unique contribution, giving us a sense of who God is and what God is like. I'll share just a few of them. Genesis fourteen verses eighteen through twenty, He is called El Elyon, God Most High. In Genesis sixteen thirteen, He is called El Roy, God Who Sees Me. In Genesis seventeen eleven, He's called El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. Some of you cannot hear that name without hearing Amy Grant singing in your thoughts, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Let's do that later. Uh, Then there are names like Elohim and Adonai. Those are all introduced in the book of Genesis. Until this point in the story of Scripture, those are the names that God has been called. Now, in Exodus 3, God speaks His name name. The actual words that God declares to Moses in Hebrew are ayah, asher, ayah. This is really fun to say. You should try that. Ayah, asher, ayah. Ayah, asher, ayah. There we go. Uh, The first and the third words of that are first-person verb, which means to be. And sandwiched in the middle of that is a pronoun, who, And so this name is more like a sentence that we translate, I am who I am. Or it can be translated, I will be who I will be. Now to our ears, it may seem that God is being mysterious in disclosing His name. But this form of communication is not meant to bring confusion, but clarity. In fact, the Bible says, regularly speaks this way to prove an important point. I'll give you one example. In Exodus chapter 33 verse 19, God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So the repetition of that creates this forceful emphasis on what is being said. Well, there's nothing more important than the name of God. And so God speaks with definition and clarity and unforgettably who he is. I am who I am. I am the God who was and who is and evermore shall be. I am the High and Holy One, the Maker of heaven and earth, the one who holds all things together, the one to whom, whose glory all things exist. He's the great aim of all things, the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He is the great I am. Then God sends Moses with a short form version of the divine name. He says, Tell the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Now that that phrase, I am, is built from the word Ayah that we looked at earlier in verse 14. This is how God says he is to be remembered and known throughout all generations. I am. For centuries, Jews would not even write down the the entirety of this name, but using only uh, the consonants, none of the vowels. This is called the tetragamaton. This is just four letters they would use. Y-H-V-H. Now, in if you're using the ESV version of the Bible, you'll see a capital L and then smaller O-R-D. Every time the divine name Yahweh is used. The Lord. This is how he has... Defined himself as God. Good news. We don't worship an unknown God. God has disclosed himself to us. He is the God of self-disclosure. The second part of his answer. God explains his name. He makes it clear that he's not a God the people should know about. Or a new God the people must learn of. Rather he is the God. Who always has been and always will be the covenantal God of his people. He reiterates the name that he already has given to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So the God of the burning bush is not an unknown God. He's the very God of Moses' father and the ancestors before him. Why would God bring this up in such an important moment? Because by mentioning the patriarchs, God assures Moses that the promises that he made to his fathers, to bless them, to multiply them, to be a blessing to the nations, to be their God and for them to be his people, those promises stand. Every promise made is a promise kept. R.C. Sproul pointed out, God, what he's doing here is proving the continuity between the one who is identified as the God of their fathers and one who now reveals his memorial name. That's what this is known as, I am who I am. What we're going to see as the story of Scripture unfolds is that God continues to explain his name through Scripture in a progressive sense, continuing to make himself known in a fuller sense. And fuller way. The name that is first whispered to Moses at Mount Sinai will soon be the praise of all of the people of Israel as they sing together the praises of the one who has redeemed them. By the time we get to the New Testament, the name of God is still front and center on every page, God revealing who he is to us through his word. But there it's even more fully known in the name Jesus, the name that is above all names. The very name by which God revealed himself in this burning bush is used by the Son of God as he walked this earth. Jesus is, I am that I am. In living flesh, dwelling among us in order to lift us from our bondage and sin. And to bring us up to a land where God has no enemy. Where no enemy of God remains. And forever we enjoy the milk and honey of his presence and his provision. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus is shown to be God in the flesh We see this every time Jesus takes the sacred name for himself. Every time he says, I am, he's identifying with the God of the burning bush, the one who has made himself known. The Gospel of John records seven different statements where Jesus proves this again and again and again. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And by the time we get to the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, the great Christ hymn, it ends with this wonderful crescendo. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus is the name to be worshipped and believed upon and proclaimed through the ages. Which is why we sing, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate, fall. Bring forth the royal diadem. That's a crown of splendor. And crown him Lord of all. What does this mean for us? That we would be a people who honor the name of God who believe the name of God, who worship and adorn the name of God, and who proclaim the name of God. Yahweh is the name of God. Jesus is the name of our Redeemer. The second section of our passage highlights this plan of redemption, verses 16 through 22. One of my favorite things to do when I get a new book, which I... Hope is every couple of days when Amazon (laughs) brings those magical packages that I hope are always filled with books. You might have other things that show up at your house. That's a waste of your money. You should buy more books. (laughs) Well, um, one of my favorite things to do when I get a (laughs) new book, now it's to the point, is to scan through the table of contents. The job of the table of contents is to communicate what the book is about. It clearly marks the path that the author is going to take. It forecasts to the reader what lies ahead. Well, verses 16 through 22 are like a table of contents that communicate what God is going to do in order to redeem his people. They clearly mark the path he's going to take. They forecast what his plan of redemption is in the unfolding chapters of Exodus 4 through 12. So what we're going to spend the next, I don't know, eight months looking at, we will now spend in the next eight minutes. I'm kidding, it won't take us eight months to get to chapter 12, but it's going to be a bit. There's no rush, this is our only book, you know. And we love it. These verses contain a promise, a plan, and a picture. That's the most Baptist alliteration you've ever heard in your life, but I think it's true. You could also use plunder for that last, that last um, sign there, but we'll go with a promise, a plan, and a picture. The promise of redemption is found in verses 16 and 17. Moses is instructed to gather the elders of Israel, to tell them of his encounter with God, And the first news he has to bring is that God has seen them. This is the third week in a row God's word has said he sees the suffering of his people. and He informs the elders who have suffered tremendously that God has not overlooked one moment of their suffering. The word observed is an interesting one. It means to pay special attention to. Or as the King James Version renders it, to visit. Oh, now that's interesting. That God has visited his people in their suffering. That he visits their suffering. Well, he's uh, walked into their pain. And he promises here to bring them up out of Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. So that's the promise piece. Now we get to the actual plan of redemption, verses 18 through 20, the actual plan of redemption. We, we've been waiting to hear what God has planned. We've heard ancient promises, but what is God actually going to do? Well, in Exodus 1 and 2, we've been in a holding pattern of not seeing a way forward, only knowing that, that in time, God would deliver his people. That timeline was first articulated in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. That was 400 years ago, and now it feels like we're going into stoppage time. How many soccer fans are there among us that know what stoppage time is? Raise your hand. Okay, I'll interpret. It's like all the time that's wasted in the match just gets tacked on at the end. So it's not like the NFL where the clock just runs down and it's gone. There's no timeouts. And so now time is expiring. These moments matter. Let me give you a different illustration. I can see this is not connecting. So now it's like the two-minute warning, all right? You're down by six, and you've got the ball on your own twelve, okay? And Tom Brady is your quarterback, all right? I feel the same way. But here, a plan is finally made known just as time is running out. And after the people listen to Moses... He's going to go to the elders and ask Pharaoh that they might take this three-day journey into the wilderness to worship Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. What I, we're going to spend more time on that in a few weeks. But what I want you to know right now, this is exactly what God wants. The, Moses and the elders to go to Pharaoh and the, ruler of, and the rulers of Egypt and tell them the name of God. Because God settles for nothing less than the praise of all people. He will be glorified them in saving and he will be glorified in judging them. God will be glorified. And now the Egyptians know his name. But God already knows that Pharaoh won't let them go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So Yahweh himself will stretch out his hand. When the Old Testament uses that language, it means that God himself will act using his power. And who will he strike? Egypt, the very one that has been striking his people. How's he going to do that? Well, we don't know that in full yet, but there's these plagues coming in chapters 7 through 10. And at the end of those plagues, he will let you go. Remember, Moses asked for a sign last week. He said, one day I'll give you one. The children of Israel will gather right here at Mount Sinai again and worship me. But until then, God continues to drip promises to him, gives him something so precious, his very word. And this is not new news. God doesn't have a plan B. He's always working his plan. It's the very promise that God had made as he spoke through Joseph before he died. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 22, he says, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. And listen to the two words he uses. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the very two words that Moses just used. God will visit them. And God will bring them up. This is always the plan. And these shadows that were cast long ago begin to be filled in with color and definition as God progressively makes known his will to his people. That's the plan. And then the final few verses of our text highlight a picture of redemption. There we learn that God is going to give the Israelites incredible favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And by the time this whole thing is over with, they're not going to leave empty, but filled. Their arms filled with Egyptian gold and silver and wearing Egyptian fine Egyptian clothing. Ultimately, these Egyptian riches are what would be used to adorn the very tabernacle of God that would be built uh, just later in the book of Exodus. And this word plunder, what a great word, plunder. Uh, Notice this plundering that God had planned was not to be achieved at this time with brute force and strength, but Hebrew women would simply ask their Egyptian women neighbors, can I have that? And the Egyptian ladies would be like, sure, take it. They're so ready to get these Israelites out of their presence. They just want them to take everything and go away. And that's exactly what God does in them. These women will be filled with treasure. It's remarkable how we've seen women involved in this great book. In chapter 2, we saw uh, women featured again and again. There was Shifra and Puah uh, refusing to perform abortion. Instead, they would save the lives of these Hebrew boys... The faith of Moses' mom in hiding him among the reeds. The attending work of his sister Miriam in going to the riverbank to make sure he was okay. The kindness of Pharaoh's daughter in rescuing him and adopting him as her own child. And now the women are the ones riding out of Egypt, blinging with style. Isn't God creative? And then notice the involvement of children. Kids, listen up. Notice that this is not just for the adults. The kids are a part of this. This is God's plan from the beginning, that our faith will be passed down from generation to generation. The sons and daughters are draped in bling as they leave Egypt too. Why? Because God's teaching his people about the riches of his redemption. They would never forget this. They would tell their children the story of how God's deliverance was so great in their lives. And they would tell that generation. They would tell that generation. They would declare the marvelous works of the Lord to all the people. That's the plan. That's what we will see unfold in chapters 4 through 12. But how could we talk about the plan of redemption without remembering how it was that you and I have been redeemed. This week, there was a group of us that attended a conference in Nashville called Sing, which is hosted by uh, some friends of mine, Keith and Kristen Getty. And one of the highlights was having Bill Gaither come out on stage and lead us in the old revivalistic hymn, Because He Lives. How many of you grew up singing Because He Lives? Some of you, far more than you ever wanted to sing it, we sing that a lot growing up. I want you to listen to how the first verse summarizes so beautifully what the New Testament teaches us about the redemption that you and I have been given in Christ. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died. To buy my pardon, an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. And that's the wonderful summary of God's ultimate plan of redemption. Jesus Christ, the great Redeemer, humbled himself and taking on flesh, living a perfect, sinless life for us common sinners, in order that we could boldly approach the perfect, holy God, whose holiness is blazing like fire. If you have not trusted in Jesus as your Redeemer, we invite you to today. Moses was just out working one day when God's voice called to him from this burning bush. Perhaps you woke up this morning, it was just another day, but now you sense the voice of God calling to you through his word. Come, come. And if you hear him calling your name, do not harden your heart, but humble it. Call upon Christ to forgive you and to come into your life. And for the rest of us, Let us be faithful in remembering and rehearsing the great redemption that God has given us. As we continue to walk through the story of Exodus, seeing God's redemption in the life of his people, let us continue to send our thoughts to how great the work of redemption has been performed on our part. When did God first introduce himself to you? Maybe it was when you were young, maybe it's today. In Exodus 3, 13-22, we are introduced to the great I Am. We're not yet done with the scene of uh, Moses speaking with God in the burning bush. But we've seen a lot. Moses welcomed into his presence, hearing God's word, commissioned with a mission. And now, he has the revelation of God's name and God's plan. But there's one problem. Moses is an Israelite. We talked earlier about names and their meaning. That name carries with it meaning that we'll look at more next week. Jacob is renamed Israel, which means he who wrestles with God. And what we will see the next couple of weeks is Moses, the Israelite, wrestling with God. Yet, what we will continue to see on every page of this story is that the blazing center of Scripture is revealing to us, introducing us, teaching us, correcting us, leading us, welcoming us to know the great I am. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us. From birth, our eyes were blind, our ears were deaf, our hearts were dead in sin, but because of the goodness of God demonstrated in the person and work of Christ. You've made yourself known to us and redeemed us, and we praise you. Let us live in response to who you are and to all that you have spoken. We pray in Christ's name.